0: Mr. Speaker, it's clear Beijing interfered in last year's 2021 election. Beijing's ambassador to Canada commented critically and publicly during that election campaign and Beijing spread disinformation through proxies on Chinese language social media platforms. And last week we find out that Beijing also interfered in the 2019 election. We find out that the Prime Minister was told ten months ago in January about hundreds of thousands of dollars that were illegally funneled to at least 11 election candidates. My question is Simple. Who are these 11 election candidates? Well, an important question uh, asked
1: uh, this week in the House of Commons by conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong. It was not a question, though, that uh, elicited an answer. So, look, I-, I think we need to better understand what happened here. Obviously, the idea that a foreign adversary would be interfering in our electoral process is something to take very seriously, and it warrants some important steps. It does also warrant having the Prime Minister. Press the matter with China's leader, which Justin Trudeau says he did this week. In one of his two encounters with China's president, the other was a little more high profile. China's president not appreciative of what he saw as leaks to the media about that conversation. Uh, And with the pool camera on hand, we all saw the very public berating of Justin Trudeau by China's president. Now, I think Canadians should certainly rally behind their prime minister in that kind of a situation. And honestly, if, if China's leader is mad at our leader, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it certainly doesn't acquit uh, the prime minister, I think, of some failings when it comes to our China policy. So, yes, we do need to take some some steps here to deal with Chinese interference and intimidation in Canada. And we probably do need a broader reset of our approach to China. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on what happened this week and also what's come to light in recent weeks. Very pleased to welcome to the program Michael Chong, who is, as mentioned, uh, the conservative foreign affairs critic, also the MP for Wellington Halton Hills. Mr. Chong, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello? Are you there? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. Great to, great to be here. Good. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate that. Yeah, um, great to be here. So, first of all, let me just get your thoughts on the incident. I guess the confrontation this week. What it represents uh, in your view?
0: Well, two thoughts I have. First, uh, I think the Chinese president showed a great deal of disrespect to the Canadian Prime Minister and to this country in the way he treated him, uh, and I think that's part of a broader pattern of belligerence from Beijing over the last several years, where they have treated with disdain uh, many democracies around the world uh, and and used threatening um, actions and, and threatening language. So, you know, I think it's a huge lack of respect for this country, for Canadians and for, you know, the Prime Minister. Uh, my second thought, though, is that I think the Prime Minister went to this conference woefully unprepared. Uh, I think when you look at the heart of the issue here, which is China's foreign interference here on Canadian soil meddling in our 2019 and 2021 elections, um, this is taking place here in Canada. And so the first action that should be taken is not to appeal to China's president to do something about it, but rather for the Canadian Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, to use his immense authority, to use the power of the federal government to take action here to stop this from happening in the first place. And I think the Prime Minister's failure to do that ahead of this meeting his his, the fact that he sat on uh, this this information, that there was illegal funding uh, from Beijing through its Toronto consulate of 11 or more election candidates in the 2019 election, that he sat on this information for 10 months, and fail to act on it, uh, I think, is the bigger problem.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, not just the lack of respect uh, towards Canada's prime minister, but just the lack of respect toward you know Canadian autonomy or the integrity of our elections. How much of an indictment is this of the government's China policy?
0: Well, I think it's a reflection that the government doesn't have yet a clear policy on the People's Republic of China. It's been years since they've promised to have a policy on China, um, something they have yet to deliver. They apparently are going to deliver one sometime in early December, uh, but we yet don't have one. And just in the last several weeks, there's been confusion from the government about exactly what this policy will be. Minister Freeland uh, on October 11th in Washington gave a major foreign policy speech where she outlined uh, Canada's new approach on what she called Canada's new approach to uh, foreign policy. Uh, many have dubbed that the Freeland Doctrine. And then yet several weeks later, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Minister Jolie, indicated that she didn't agree with the idea of a doctrine for Canada when it comes to China. Um, we had Minister Champagne, the industry minister in, in Washington several weeks ago, talk about decoupling the Canadian economy from uh, the economy of China. And then Uh, Senior sources close to Minister Jolie uh, told the newspapers that, uh, told a newspaper that uh, they didn't believe in decoupling. So there's been confusion about what exactly the government's policy is. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And and the President Xi of China takes advantage of that uh, to sow confusion, to sow discord. And uh, I think it's long past time for the government to come forward with a clear, clear written policy. So everyone, both here in Canada and abroad, knows exactly where we stand.
1: Right. We also had reports in recent weeks about, you know, Chinese police perhaps operating uh, clandestinely in Canada. I think uh, another serious uh, breach of, of our sovereignty here. So what, what steps do you think we can take immediately to deal with this kind of interference?
0: Well, there's a number of steps that should be taken immediately. First, uh, the Chinese ambassador needs to be hauled on the carpet Uh, and the federal government needs to indicate in no uncertain terms how angry and upset it is about this violation of international law. These uh, stations are not legal under domestic or international law. Uh, China's not been authorized to open them here in Canada, and so the government needs to clearly indicate that to China's top diplomat here in Canada. The second thing that needs to happen is that Uh, The government needs to review the diplomatic credentials of the several hundred diplomats accredited to uh, China's embassy and consulates here in Canada. And if it, through the investigation, comes to light that any of these diplomats were involved with these illegal stations, they should have their credentials stripped and they should be uh, removed from Canada. Um, The next thing that needs to happen is, is there needs to be a review of anyone else working out of these stations, And if they have come here on a visa, a Canadian visa approved by the Canadian government, they clearly came here under false pretenses. And those visas should be revoked. Those individuals should be deported back to the PRC. And so those are just some of the immediate actions that should be taken. But longer term, what needs to happen is that the government needs to beef up law enforcement. We have seen many cases in the last several years south of the border where the U.S. Department of Justice has... Uh, charged numerous individuals who were meddling in U.S. democracy and intimidating uh, people in the United States. They've led to investigations. It's led to charges uh, and arrests. We've not seen anything happen here in Canada. There has not been a single case that has been investigated that has led to charges against individuals who are committing these crimes here in Canada. And so uh, it's long past time that that happened it's clear that these sorts of things are happening here and so we need to the government needs to beef up law enforcement and ensure they got the resources and the tools to get the job done
1: Right, and securing our institutions. I mean, we, we had uh, the announcement, of course, just recently of what the RCMP say are, are espionage charges, uh, an employee at, at Hydro-Quebec. That's concerning. Of course, we've still got lingering questions about what happened with these two scientists at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg, this this top-secret laboratory. What's the latest you can tell us on that? I understand there, there is an agreement now that, that MPs on this committee are going to have access to some of the documents.
0: Well, as you mentioned, uh, what's... Finally, we've seen a charge regarding intellectual theft, uh, the theft of intellectual property with this uh, announcement that the RCMP have charged an employee of Hydro-Quebec for stealing very sensitive information about the latest advanced research and development into electrical technologies and passing that along to uh, authorities in in mainland China. So. Uh, this is the first time we've seen uh, an investigation that has concluded in an arrest and in charges against an individual for stealing intellectual property in Canada, and so it's a good first start. But much more needs to be done with respect to the Winnipeg Lab documents. Uh, you know, the, we we were left with no other recourse uh, but to agree to the government's. Uh, Decision to send it to this this extra parliamentary committee. Originally, we had demanded that these documents be sent to a parliamentary committee for review. Um, We were successful in making that demand in the last parliament, but unfortunately in this parliament, the New Democrats have sided with the Liberals and uh, not supported our demand that they be handed over to a parliamentary committee. So the government gave us no other option um, but to uh, agree to this ad hoc committee it's, it's a committee that sits outside of Parliament, and a panel of three judges will determine what documents MPs will have access to. And so it's not uh, the best case scenario uh, that we would have liked, but since it's the only option we have, we've agreed to sit on the committee to try to get to the bottom of what happened. Um, my big problem with this committee is that uh, I don't think Parliament um, should be treated as a second fiddle to uh, the justice system, to to three judges. I think our judicial system, our parliament, our co-equals in a three-branch system of the executive, the legislative, and, and judicial systems. And um, this whole setup, I think, puts uh, reduces parliamentary supremacy and the representation of Canadians.
1: We'll see what comes from this. We'll leave it there for now. Michael Chong, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks again for this.
0: Yeah, thank you for having
1: me. All the best. Michael Chong is the conservative MP for wellington Halton Hills. He is the conservative foreign affairs critic and so some interesting thoughts on how we need to uh, address some of these issues. What's interesting too is you know some of the fallout regarding this uh, incident between uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, Xi Jinping uh this week. You know this the suggestion that somehow I don't know the opposition is is upset here that it's a bad thing that China's leader is, is mad at uh, Canada's prime minister, and I don't think that's an accurate way of framing it, right? Yeah, there's a clear lack of respect there, and, and clearly Xi Jinping is an, is trying to be a, a bully. So the issue isn't, well, it's a bad thing that uh, China's leader is upset with our prime minister, and sure, it would it would be worse if they were, you know, buddy-buddy. But it's interesting to hear that kind of a defense of the government this week. As Andrew Coyne notes in his piece in the Globe and Mail today, uh, let's rewind back to 2009. Now, a different Chinese leader at the time, obviously. But it's not the first time we've seen a public rebuke. Stephen Harper received one in 2009 on an official visit to China. in a rebuke from uh, the then-Chinese premier, Wen Ji-bao, for not having visited sooner. What was the reaction then? Liberal foreign affairs critic Bob Ray said Harper had reaped what he was, uh, was weeping what he had sown due to his provocative refusal to engage with China. Uh, Jack Layton, the NDP leader at the time, said the snub showed that there's work to do on Canada's part. So that's interesting. When the last time there was a, a rebuke of a Canadian leader by a Chinese leader, fingers of blame were pointed at the Canadian leader. And yet these same people are, are turned around and saying, look, it's, it's not just Trudeau's fault that he got rebuked by uh, Xi Jinping, which is true. It's not his fault. And we should condemn China's leader for being a bully. But that's the point. How long it's taken the liberals and their defenders to recognize that that's what we're dealing with in the Chinese government. We're, we're condemned to, to working together and to finding solutions together. It's a global problem.
2: It, the
1: solutions we find have to be global.: Once well, Canada's Environment minister Stephen Gilbo speaking at the COP27 summit, there was a last-minute scramble to get an agreed-upon statement. The minister saying, we need to work to, together. This has to be a global solution, Which is true. It was also interesting this week Gilbo announced that Canada would not back COP27's call for a phase-out of all fossil fuels, including oil and gas. So whether that signifies a a more pragmatic approach from this government, I guess, remains to be seen. But it speaks to the the challenge in addressing all of this and the important balance that we need to strike here. Because we are are at an interesting moment here where there is still considerable demand for energy and some geopolitical implications that come along with meeting that supply. But there is an environmental challenge to be addressed. Uh, And we are at the cusp of uh, a major change. So how do we as a country navigate all of that? A country that is an energy superpower, certainly could be, but also a country that wants to be a leader when it comes to environmental policy and addressing climate change. Well, this is the, the focus of a new book from uh, someone we've spoken with many times, who's written previous books on energy and, and environmental policy matters. Dennis McConaughey is a former TC Energy executive. His latest book, it's called Carbon Change, Canada on the Brink of Decarbonization, and he joins us on, on the line here this afternoon. Dennis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Let me get your thoughts on kind of this, this moment we're at, where there is a lot of demand still for energy, energy that Canada can produce, but uh, there is a lot of pressure to accelerate this transition.
2: Well, my basic uh, contention in the book, and, and, and what my hope is that there will be a new debate within Canada, if not amongst developed economies of the world, that perhaps the goal of decarbonizing our economies... Because that's, in fact, what is at stake when people talk about net zero. Decarbonizing, that is not using hydrocarbons, may not be the optimal set of policy to find the right balance between mitigating climate risk and still maintaining the quality of economic standards that the developed world has come to expect and uh, will demand of its political leaders to still be provided. It is my view that decarbonization is an extreme position. Uh, it is my view that the world should consider perhaps adapting to some higher global temperature increase, if in fact the carbon morals are all correct, and certainly for Canada. Canada needs to find a balance between being at least credible in terms of its climate policy, but at the same time recognizing that by simply destructing its hydrocarbon export industry, which affects Alberta as much as it affects any part of the country. Uh, what's, that, what's the point of that if the world continues to use hydrocarbons and if other nations in the world supply the market share that Canada would otherwise have? So my book is a plea, really, for a reconsideration of this effort to decarbonize uh, the world energy systems.
1: Well, this is an important point because I think there are proponents of decarbonization uh, who suggest that this will be easy or suggest that you know somehow it's actually a net benefit to do so. But what you lay out in the book is an analysis of you know what the actual costs are, and you argue they're considerable
2: well people should like just think of some simple examples I mean, how is the world going to do without plastic? how is it going to do without the petrochemicals that are produced from hydrocarbons to make those plastics. There's no substitutes to that. Even making something as mundane as as cement without hydrocarbons is very difficult to do in terms of getting the requisite uh, uh, chemical reaction going or the heat required for steelmaking. All of these things are enormously difficult. It's one thing to imagine that certain uses of hydrocarbons can be replaced by electrical alternatives such as space heating personal automobiles but there's other elements of that whether it's aviation marine traffic or even making fertilizer to keep our agricultural industry going this transition is neither easy or cheap to affect the point that i am making is that perhaps the world will should reconsider that the cost of climate change is not infinite or the risk of climate change is not infinite. It is uh, finite, and the price that needs to be accounted for or the cost that needs to be accounted for is perhaps uh, something that the world should impose on itself, but that doesn't mean necessarily the elimination of all hydrocarbons for all applications. And so the world should really take a step back here to consider perhaps having uniform carbon pricing across developed economies, including in China and India, would actually be a better way to affect a more optimal energy transition to the extent that it is justified by the dimensions of the climate risk. What's
1: well, interesting, you know, I mean, here at home, obviously, I think the energy industry clearly wants to be a part of the solution. At least they want to be involved in the conversation. We do have, for example, the Pathway Alliance represents some big players in in uh, the oil sands uh, suggesting that, you know, we we can do, if done correctly, we can get to net zero. That's going to mean a lot of reliance on nuclear energy, on carbon capture technology. So what do you make of, of those in the industry, though, who say that under the right circumstances, a lot of this is doable?
2: Well, here's my point. Uh, if they think it's doable, here on them. Uh, what I do know is that Carbon capture and sequestration is a very difficult technology to uh, implement and effect. It is very costly. And just to put cost into context, I am not even sure in the best of applications, such as perhaps putting CCS systems on the back end of oil sands upgraders, that that can be done uh, even for the $170 a tonne. Carbon tax that our federal government will be imposing on us by 2030, or some number around 200 dollars a ton. Those are in the very best of circumstances to deploy this technology, versus all the other ways we burn hydrocarbons, whether it's like remote uh, natural gas, uh, <clears throat> natural gas boilers to generate the steam to do in situ recovery the way we heat our homes presently, the way that we produce uh, the necessary hydrogen for making the uh, ammonia-based fertilizers that actually allow agricultural uh, production to be sustained, let alone petrochemical production, all in Alberta. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the extent of CCS as a panacea, I am skeptical about. It's not my place to judge whether or not the people within Pathways think they can do it. My only point is that uh, the cost of actually having those technologies, even remotely economic, imply very high carbon prices. And maybe those carbon prices are justified. But Canada shouldn't be at $170 a ton or 200 if the rest of the world, and especially the countries we trade with, aren't at the same number. So again, this is another failure of our own domestic climate policy to have no conditionality about what the rest of the world does uh, before we start imposing these huge costs on ourselves.
1: Well, that's the thing, and you know, we heard the, the clip from the environment minister talking about this has to be a global solution, but yeah, Canada certainly seems willing to act unilaterally. I mean, that's not going to have much impact on the climate, but it could
2: certainly... Well, I have imp- long been a critic of Canada having the idea of imposing carbon prices on itself to national carbon taxes... That are significantly higher than what the rest of the world is imposing on themselves, and that should be, a, you know, a fundamental revision of the way we set the price of carbon in Canada. So specifically, we're as a country supposed to be at 170 dollars a ton by 2030, and we say that unconditionally. Mm-hmm. I think that's that should be absolutely revisited. Now, 170 might be the right number if the global developed economies are going to make significant progress to implementing what I would call a more rational energy transition. But we all have to be in this together, and we all have to be willing to do it on the same time frame, the same impacts on our domestic economies, and also, and this is always the most meddlesome element of it, it has to include China and India. So again, why would Canada impose more costs on itself as compared to other economies, especially when we're not only a northern climate, but we're also a world, still a leader in the world in terms of the export of crude oil and have the potential to be an enormous exporter of natural, of LNG, of natural mm-hmm. gas in the form of LNG. And, and, you know, we haven't yet discussed, Rob, the, the uh, energy security the geopolitical aspects of this, but that's also something that Canada needs to think about when it's setting its future as how much of an energy exporter am I going to be? How much good do I do for the world in terms of energy security versus trying to meet uh, a contribution on climate change that may actually be uh, mm-hmm. disproportionate for Canada's circumstances? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, it is interesting. You, you note know, the—I don't know if we want to call it a, a disconnect or maybe it's hypocrisy at some level. Or it's, it's just odd that uh, the government has made carbon pricing front and center when it comes to domestic climate policy. Yet there's little or no interest in pursuing that at a global level. What, what do
2: you make of that? Well, back in Glasgow, some of us remember that Justin Trudeau did news about you know carbon pricing at the level of Canada's level perhaps being a model for other economies to uh, pursue, the leader of the EU thanked him for those thoughts. And of course, his great friend Joe Biden reflected none of that in any of the initiatives he has approached with respect to climate in the United States. So there is a fundamental disconnect. It, it's because the idea of using uniform carbon pricing across developed economies, even though I think most of The people who call themselves climate economists would contend this is absolutely the most efficient way of dealing with the problem, especially if it's conditioned how high the tax is on the basis of the net benefits and costs of using hydrocarbons. You still have to get a political consensus across those development economies to do it the same way, whereas they've all devolved to this current UN process where they all sign up for voluntary emission reduction pledges with no enforcement mechanism, and without China and India in the game. And, you know, there's countries like Canada led by people who, you know, I think are, at times their altruism uh, runs uh, ahead of their realism of what's in the actual Canadian self-interest. This is why I think there should be a fundamental reconsideration of what is Canadian climate and energy policy.
1: We'll leave it there, Dennis. The book is called Carbon Change Canada on the Brink of Decarbonization. Much more at your website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy, D O C E dot C A. Always appreciate it, Dennis. Great to have you with us here. Thanks for joining Thank
2: us. Thank you very much.
1: All the best. Uh, Dennis McConaughey, uh, former TC Energy executive, author and commentator on energy uh, and climate policy on Canada. Again, his latest is called Carbon Change Canada on the Brink of Decarbonization. So it's Taylor Swift off her latest album. That song is called uh, Antihero. Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. Well, that sounds maybe what uh, Ticketmaster maybe is or should be singing this week. Uh, Taylor Swift fans are very frustrated. Taylor Swift herself is very frustrated at what happened with Ticketmaster this week. Posting a statement today, it's really difficult for me to trust an outside entity with these relationships and loyalties and excruciating for me to just watch mistakes happen with no recourse. There are a multitude of reasons why people had such a hard time trying to get tickets. I'm trying to figure out how the situation can be improved moving forward. I'm not going to make excuses for anyone because we asked them multiple times if they could handle this kind of demand. We were assured they could. It's truly amazing that 2.4 million people got tickets. But it really pisses me off that a lot of them feel like they had to go through several bear attacks to get them. And To those who didn't get tickets, all I can say is that my hope is to provide more opportunities for us to all get together and sing these songs. So Taylor Swift is set to go on tour. There was an insane amount of demand to go see Taylor Swift in concert. So much demand, the Ticketmaster couldn't handle it. The pre-sale went ahead earlier this week. As mentioned, 2.4 million tickets sold. But then the general public sale today had to be canceled. Ticketmaster just couldn't handle it. Joining us for some thoughts on this whole debacle, Al, uh, Alan Cross joins us, a music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. More at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, welcome to the program.
3: Yeah, this is a bit a uh, bit of a screw-up, this one. Oh, my goodness,
1: it is. So let's try to unpack what went sideways here. The pre-sale unfolded, millions uh, of tickets sold, and somewhere between there and yesterday, things went sideways.
3: Right. So this was a pre-sale, which means you had to have been a verified fan, something that you have to go through before you can even go online. You get a code, and that's supposed to get you uh, to the head of the line. Um, what happened was that there were 3.5 billion requests on Ticketmaster's servers. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And and of those, there were 2 million who were verified fans, the only people that should have been let through. But then there were another 14 million that tried to get through when they really shouldn't have. And this huge hit on the servers uh, brought Ticketmaster down. This has... They've never seen anything like this before. This is four times the regular number, the highest number that they've ever received for, for ticket requests. So uh, it, they just basically melted down.
1: And people aren't happy, obviously. Look, Taylor Swift has a very devoted uh, and, and very large group of fans, and I think that, that's become evident this week. But I think the high-profile nature of all of this, now leading to you know, scrutiny of Ticketmaster and their practices or the fact that since they merged with Live Nation, maybe they've become too big. But is this a, a story about Ticketmaster?
3: No, it's not. Uh, Ticketmaster has some of the most robust infrastructure Anywhere you'll find in the tech world, uh, they deal with bots all the time. They deal with uh, cyber threats all the time. This is a really, really robust system. But the amount of demand that was placed on it was just was just way too much. Um, it's something that they're going to obviously have to figure out uh, figure out how to um, uh, how to how to fix in the future. They're going to have to upgrade their servers. They're going to have to um, come up with new algorithms. You know, a bunch of things. But the story is not Ticketmaster. The story is that Taylor Swift is this massive, massive star and millions upon millions of people tried to get tickets at the same time. Um, it's not, well, we could say it's not Ticketmaster's fault, but it, it kind of is because they should have been prepared for this, but they, right. they obviously were not. But, you know, now to call for Ticketmaster to be broken up or, or to be called to account for, for this, you know, ticketing fiasco, I mean, what's the option? The, the, the story is Taylor Swift. The story is not Ticketmaster. And all the political and populist grandstanding right now about trying to break, you know, having to break up Ticketmaster, they're too big. Or too. Who else would have, you know, nobody else can right. handle this kind of volume. <laughs> so by breaking this up into, into, into smaller ticket sellers would have been better? No, absolutely not. Well,
1: you still have the same amount of demand. Yeah, it's hard to see how it would necessarily be better if you've got five smaller companies all trying to manage all of this. That might be even more confusing.
3: It would be. Now, again, we're talking about $3.5 billion, or billion ticket requests. If everybody had been satisfied, if you, they had been able to fulfill all those requests, the story is that Taylor Swift would have been able to fill 900 stadiums and she would have had to play every single night for two and a half years <laughs> yeah. to accommodate the demand. There is, you know, when we talk about these things, and we ran across it before with the Tragically Hip and their final tour. Right. There were millions of people who wanted to buy thousands of seats. Now, I'm not very good at math, but I know a million doesn't go into a thousand very well. And that's basically what we're talking about. Supply was completely overwhelmed by demand. And now people are saying, oh, I didn't get a chance to go. I'm, I'm the Taylor Swift's biggest fan. I should be able to go to the show. Well, you know what? No, <laughs> that's not how it works. It's, it's, there's, there's a limited supply. You didn't get in, and that's the way it goes. I mean, it's, it's like anything else that's, that's scarce. Hey, yeah. I wanted to get on this flight, but there are no seats. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, WestJet near Kent. I should be able to get on this flight. Well, no, there's no seats left. Right. Sorry, you just you, 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 you lost out.
1: But that's the thing. I mean, you know, trying to to meet the demand with supply can only go so far. Now, you know, we had that in recent years. Garth Brooks came through uh, Edmonton and Calgary and, you know, started with a couple shows and it expands to three or four or five or maybe even seven or nine, which helps. But there's only so many days in in a week. There's only so many weeks and months in a year. You can only take that so far, right?
3: You can. Now, Garth Brooks was very smart and he was able to play uh, as many shows in a given uh, market as Uh, demand required. Uh, This far outstrips that, far, far outstrips that. So uh, we all should be talking about not how Ticketmaster failed, although that is a story, but we should be talking about how insanely popular Taylor Swift is and how insanely devoted her fan base is. That's what we should be talking about. Now, to be fair, Ticketmaster is designed to be a whipping boy. They are designed to take all the heat for when things go wrong. This is completely, um, like I said, by design. So Taylor Swift's not getting the blowback. Uh, Live Mm -hmm. Nation's not getting the blowback. Uh, It's Ticketmaster. They absorb criticism.
1: Part of it is, though, the pre-sale element and not just the fact that there is a pre-sale, but the fact that even before tickets are available to the general public, they're showing up on these secondary sites, you know, for thousands of dollars. In some cases, I I think, you know, it was five figures people were selling some tickets for. So how do we deal with that side of it?
3: Well, when you see tickets available on the secondary sites before tickets go on sale, those are speculative tickets. They don't don't, uh, really exist. The seller is saying, I have a very good chance of being able to secure a ticket. And when I do, I will sell it to you for this price. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the real murkiness of uh, bulk buyers on Ticketmaster and all the rest of it. But this this is a completely different story. This is, this is something that we deal with on, uh, on, a, on a regular basis where you have these preferred buyers coming into Ticketmaster, buying tickets, and then immediately reselling them on the secondary market. That's a completely different story. Right. Uh, this, is, this, is, this one here is simply about supply and demand.
1: Well, what do you think the fallout's going to be? I mean, as you say, I mean, there's there's this sort of populist push to to somehow punish Ticketmaster, break up Ticketmaster. It does raise some of these other questions. Is this likely all going to blow over, given the fact of you know this is Taylor Swift, this is the you know the Swifties who are are furious here? Do you, do you suspect we're actually going to see something happen as a result?
3: This too shall pass. We, as you might remember, the. Uh parliamentary inquiries and um, provincial inquiries into sales of the tragically hit tickets back in 2016, nothing ever came of it. You know, people just started doing stories on how tickets are sold to concerts and realizing that it is a giant, giant, hugely complex situation that has no easy answers. If there was something better than Ticketmaster, if there was something better than how things are handled now, we would have seen it. But we, we, it's, it's just not, it's like what Churchill, Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for all the others. And that's <laughs> basically what we're dealing with with Ticketmaster. It's the worst form of ticket selling except for all the others.
1: Yeah, I suspect you're right. Much more is mentioned at JournalOfMusicalThings.com. Alan Cross, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. You're welcome. There you go. That's uh, music writer, historian, broadcaster. Alan Cross also hosted the Ongoing History of New Music. So kind of an overview of what happened here that even for a giant like Ticketmaster, there was still too much demand for them to handle. So what kind of a system would work when you get that kind of demand uh, for a singer who, who's only able to provide so much supply in terms of concerts? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com.